Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. As part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout out to Ascension Academy, online at ascensionacademy.org, and to Amarillo College, online at actx.edu. Look for the new July-August issue of Brick and Elm, available now, featuring a cover story about queso. We call it our Amarillo Queso Quest, plus features about Sad Monkey Mercantile, two Caprock students who are headed to Harvard, a mobile farmer's market from Square Mile Community Development, and a lot more. It's a fun issue. Read the e-edition at brickandelm.com. Today's guest is Sherman Bass. Sherman is the film commissioner for the Amarillo Convention and Visitor Council, which is a relatively new position for him. Before that, he spent years as the general manager of the Amarillo Civic Center Complex. We talk about both jobs in this interview, from what it's like right now to be promoting Amarillo as a place to shoot and produce TV and film, to some of his experiences managing the Civic Center. From the major artists like Garth Brooks, who performed there over the years, to some of its recent challenges. The Civic Center, I realize, has been a major topic of local discussion over the past three years, and no one knows more about it than Sherman. So here's Sherman Bass. Sherman Bass, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. I'm pleased to be here. Thank you for having me. I'm pleased to have you. You're one of those people who I've wanted to have as a guest for a long time, and I'm glad we've made it happen. Um, And so I want to start with you the same place that I've started with all my guests and just ask you why you're here in Amarillo. So what brought you to this area in the first place? Well, mom and dad brought me here. Okay. I, I was born and raised in Amarillo, and I've certainly moved away a time or two and always found my way back. Um, most recently, my wife and I had been in North Carolina in Asheville, and my mother's health was was poor, and we would have liked to have been closer to home, and, mm-hmm. and our daughter's first child was born, and it was really an urge to be closer to home, and that summer, the uh, current Civic Center manager, Chris Miller, announced that he was going to be retiring, and the city manager asked if I'd come in for an interview, and the rest, I, I guess, is fate. What what year was that? That was in 2009. Okay. Uh, and then you were here, you grew up here before that, though, right? Correct. I was born and, and raised here. I'm a Tuscosa rebel. Okay. Where'd you go for college? You know, my college journey took me in several places, but I graduated from West Texas A&M. Okay. And got my start at Amarillo College, so... Did you get a degree in civic center management? I was did that not the get a degree. Uh, there actually are degree plans <laughs> are for really? facility management okay. now, but uh, no, I have a theater degree and spent a few years trying to make it as a professional actor. Tell me tell me about those years. I know you had a connection to the play Texas. I was in Texas for four seasons okay. and was uh, privileged to play Calvin Armstrong the latter two of those seasons. Had a wonderful time, a great experience. It's uh, really as a family, especially when you're able to come back and do it a few years at a time. So that was a lot of fun. What years were those? My last year in Texas was 90. Okay. It was the 25th anniversary season. I spent about a year touring the country with the Children's Theater Program, the Omaha Theater Company for Young People. And that's when I realized I did not want to live out of a suitcase. Yeah. And... uh, had an opportunity actually to come back to Amarillo for my second stint at the Civic Center after that, and 
was the assistant manager for eight years. And then uh, one thing after another changed, ended up in Asheville, North Carolina for two years. And that's the trip I was talking about yeah. coming back in, in 2009. And um, Asheville's a beautiful community, a, a similar community to Emerald in the sense that it's a economic hub for a large region of Western North Carolina, but it's always good to be home. Yeah. Tell me, tell me about that transition out of the acting and theater world, since that's what you went to school for. And then you started to realize, okay, I don't want to travel with a company, you know, for uh, every day of the year. What do you do when you start thinking, okay, my career might be a different career than what I was thinking? You know, I always knew that acting might not be the career. And fortunately, I had parents that encouraged me to make sure I got a degree and I studied hard and did well in college, and so I did. Um, but I'd spent my since I was ten years old. I was a volunteer at Emerald Little Theater, on stage, backstage, front of house, whatever they'd have me do, I would do. And so, after college, I applied to work at the Emerald Civic Center after I graduated, and I was hired as the first full time box office manager. Okay, and that would have been ninety one. Okay, and so I spent two years in that role. Then I went to work for Opera Omaha in Omaha, Nebraska, and uh, was the box office audience services manager there. And that's where I discovered, wow, I might have another opportunity at this, and, and went to work for the Omaha Theater Company. After that stint on the road is when I realized, you know, I'm not, I love acting. It's, it's great fun, but I don't know that I really want to work hard enough to make it my career. It's hard work yeah. to make a living at it. And there was a position open at the Civic Center as assistant manager. So I came down to Amarillo and interviewed for that position and got it and spent eight years as assistant manager at the Civic Center. Tell me about that first stint in management with the Civic Center compared to your most recent stint. Um, I know there's a difference in being manager and assistant manager, but like were were there different – was the entertainment different the first time around versus the second time? I mean, what are some of the ways that maybe the the use of the Civic Center evolved? When we say Civic Center, we, we, we're talking about a big multi-purpose complex. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people, when they hear Civic Center, think about the Coliseum, right. the arena. And so what we've seen since that first stint through my retirement last year is a massive growth in the size of events. So the first expansion, we had a ballroom, the Grand Plaza was 16,000 square feet. And the expansion that occurred in 2003 was the North End and the Heritage Ballroom. Okay. That was 20,000 square feet. And all of the studies and all of us working hands-on, about 25% increase, that's going to give some room for growth. And we immediately had events fill it. Wow. They were just waiting to expand. Most of those events were community events. At the same time, we doubled the exhibit space, and we immediately started filling both exhibit halls. Not necessarily larger events, but two events on the same weekend almost every weekend. Okay. And so that growth happened pretty quickly, and we haven't had any improvements since 2003, so it's been 20 years since that happened. At the same time, the Coliseum has been used well and often, but primarily from sports during that time. Yeah. Hockey. Hockey, indoor football, indoor soccer. And the tours that are touring have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. And the majority of the larger tours, even if they didn't need more seats, can't physically fit in the confines of the Coliseum. The biggest one is the steel clearance. 
the bottom of the steel where you would hang sets and lights and sound, etc., to the floor is 38 feet 6 inches. And there's tour after tour after tour now that can't fit in under 50 feet. Hmm. And it's not that they need, I mean, some of them want a big facility. Some want a facility that has the same number of seats as we can mm-hmm. offer. They just can't fit, like, their stuff, they their screens, the, the equipment. In. Yeah, right. it, it doesn't it doesn't fit. And then backstage, the amenities can't compare to what modern arenas have. The Civic Center was built in 19, or opened in 1968. At that time, there were no auditorium restrooms. The concourse between the Coliseum and the auditorium served as the men's and women's restroom for the auditorium. Okay. No one envisioned having two events at the same time. Yeah. And and by the same token, backstage, the loading dock for the auditorium, if you're using it, you can't access the Coliseum floor. It was a shared loading area. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall back in 64 when the bond passed and they started building the Civic Center and what they were thinking. But I'm guessing they were thinking we'd been with the, the music hall, the theater for so long with one venue that surely we wouldn't have two events at the same time. Yeah, for sure. Now you look back from then to 2023 and we can host nine different events in the facility at the same time if the load in and load out of different areas can happen at different times. So it, it's pretty remarkable what, what the Civic Center can handle. Sadly, it can't handle the larger tours and it can't handle the larger meetings. There have been a lot of discussions. I, I, I know that the use of the Civic Center has always been much bigger, as you've said, than concerts. But like people used to think, you know, that the concerts we used to have, because Amarillo is a natural stopover point between Oklahoma City and Albuquerque or, or anything like that. And so we had some pretty prominent acts come through. Sure. Uh, that And, I mean, that's not happening now. I, I think there have been inquiries that th- they wanted to come, but, like, didn't know the, the height issues that we had. But, like, can, can you look back at some of the acts who used to come to the Civic Center and who performed there compared to what kinds of stuff that we well, might get now? I, I can tell you some, a couple of specific Because I know you've got some stories. stories. Yeah. One is, and I, I can't remember the exact year, but I think it was 2017 or 18, I got a call from Cher's booking agent. And Cher was building out the B side of her big tour that ended up being canceled because she was ill and and things occurred. But And I the first thing out of my mouth was, unless you do it in the round, this is what your capacity is. Mm-hmm. Not an issue. Really? 53, 5,400? 5, no problem. Hmm. Backstage, limited dressing rooms. I mean, her wardrobe comes like in two semis. We don't have that kind yeah. of space. Not an issue. What about the steel height? We're going to have to get production on it. She was one, I don't think it was exactly 50 feet, but it was somewhere above 38 feet, and they couldn't break down her video wall and have the same production value that they wanted to hmm. keep on the tour, and it went away. Um, Trans-Siberian Orchestra is a great example of one that started in Amarillo. Their very first year touring, they were in the auditorium. They were actually in the auditorium two years, then it moved to the Coliseum, then it moved to Lubbock. That was a capacity issue more mm-hmm. than anything. When they brought out their spring tour, they brought it into Amarillo, and they made it fit. Um, But that's a lot of work on the road crew, too, to make an adjustment like that when they're used to playing the right-size facility and then 
cut back on it to make it fit into a smaller facility. But that's another good example. Uh, we didn't ask specifically about capacity, but I did a lot of research. And one of the things I did, a good friend of mine runs the Spirit or, or United Supermarket Arena in Lubbock. Mm-hmm. And I went through about two and a half years worth of dates with him from every event that was in their facility, compared it to the same time frame, every event that was in our facility. Only two of them wouldn't have fit. One of them um, was the Garth Brooks residency that when he did the five shows in yeah. Lubbock. Okay. The other one was another country act, and I can't think who it was right now. That every other one not only would have fit, but most played Amarillo. Mm-hmm. Luke Combs, when he first played United Supermarkets Arena, played to half house, and their half house capacity is 8,000. So based on the recommendations from the, the studies and the architects, a 9,000 capacity end stage would have been a sweet spot for Amarillo, and there would have been very few tours would have bypassed us for a larger venue. And most of those are bypassing Lubbock, too. I mean, they're playing mm-hmm. yeah. at and Stadium. It's the cold and, plays and, and yeah. Taylor Swift's and stuff like yeah. that that aren't going to come here anyway. Yeah. Are there other issues beyond that concert sort of thing where you start to see the size of the Civic Center become a challenge that we can't quite overcome? I mean, I, I know WRCA is a, a prominent... Event. I know there are other, probably other rodeos and, and things like that. That, yeah, I, th- I think the the load in access to the facility, to the Coliseum. We're talking about the, the Coliseum, is is definitely a deterrent. It's, I mean, WRCA is a good example. The amount of dirt that's brought in for that event, and it's all coming in one dump tr- truck at a time. Yeah, down a ramp, down a two hundred foot hall, around a very tight corner. And it just adds a lot compared to a modern venue where you just pull in, you raise overhead doors, and you pull onto the arena floor. Um, the backstage area is an issue, mm-hmm. uh, both in the shared aspect with the auditorium and, and the quality of the amenities. I mean, the, the dressing rooms for the Coliseum have like a seven-and-a-half-foot clearance. And that's because there's another set of dressing rooms stacked on top of them for the auditorium. And so there's no way to to make them larger or yeah. more uh, amenable in terms of size without getting rid of the dressing rooms upstairs. So uh, there's a lot of logistical problems. And on the convention side, the same thing. Um, we have a lot of shows, of trade shows that come to Amarillo that would use 50 or 75,000 square feet if it was contiguous. It's really tough on those shows to break it up in rooms that are right. separated by hallways. Which we is, have I mean, some that do that. And, I mean, that has to happen with, like, business connection. You That's know, a has perfect example. It. They're in all four rooms in every hallway. Right. And they would fill a 75,000 square foot exhibit hall without any issue. Um, there's no pre-function space. The, the hallways that that are 30 foot wide in the convention center end and the north end of the facility are great, but that's also the public access for all the events that are going on in each room. So you can't fill it with cocktail tables or photo booths yeah. or you, you can, but you have to understand the the Cowboys are going to come right through your gala to, to get to their event. <laughs> exactly. Are there any other issues that, you know, you having worked so closely, I mean, working in the civic center for so many years that, that we might not realize as the public, you know, whether it's about 
how it operates, some of the challenges, some I, of the surprises. I think the other thing that I wish I had an opportunity to tell more people about is actually getting acts in. They fit. They're okay with Amarillo. Promoting is a business. Mm-hmm. And promoters that promote events are gambling that they're going to make money. They have a set number of expenses they have to pay. Correct. They're just hoping the ticket sales are, are going to cover than those. that yeah. and that they can make enough money to keep going to the next town and then the next day or whatever it might be. And so while we will get calls or even make calls to hold dates for agents and routing folks, and we'll get a lot of those, and they'll stay on the books for a long time. But ultimately, if they don't have a promoter that will take the risk to put on the show in our community, it's not going to happen. Hmm. And a lot of the talent out there is very expensive. Yeah. And so that, that's another thing I've noticed. It's not a, a criticism necessarily, but you know, people gasp often at the prices of tickets in Amarillo. But if you go to Dallas or Oklahoma City or Albuquerque or Denver, um, you pay more. Yeah, for sure. So, and I don't know how much of that is, you know, we're treating ourselves because we're going to go see a show we've always wanted to see in Dallas. So we don't think about it. So $100 a ticket. It's no big deal there. But it's $100 in Amarillo and everybody's Mm -hmm. gasping about the price of the ticket. So it's a fine line. And the promoter set the prices. The Civic Center of the city has nothing to do with that. You just have a set fee that they've got to pay to use the facility. Correct. Right? One of the criticisms I've heard and. Maybe you can can answer this. I don't know if this is just what we tell each other or, or whether it's accurate. That Amarillo's walk-up culture for events is very strong. A lot of people won't buy tickets in advance, but they'll you'll have you know thousands of people show up at the door. Is is that is that true, or is that just how it is everywhere? People are not always willing to make the commitment until the day of an event. I think it depends on the artist. Okay, um, and the event. Whether they're worried it might sell out or not. Uh, mm-hmm. At WRCA, we talked about as a great example. They do four performances of the World Championship Ranch Rodeo. Friday and Saturday night. Uh, well, Saturday night will sell out in June. Okay. The tickets go on sale June 1st every year. The event's not until November. Saturday will sell out in June. Friday will sell out by the end of August, if not sooner. So when the demand's there, they will sell mm-hmm. pretty quickly. People know on Thursday and Sunday they can walk up and get a ticket, and easily 10 to 20% of Thursday and Sunday sales are day of. Okay. So part of that, I think, is the demand factor. I'm, I'm going to talk about later there's nothing to do in Amarillo, <laughs> but there is a lot to do in Amarillo. And yeah. I think some people just wait. They've got to make a decision. They don't want to make a decision three months at a time. You, uh, you retired from your job with the Civic Center last year. Mm-hmm. How much of that was due to you know, kind of banging your head against the wall, trying to make the facility work? Like, like were there frustrations with the limitations that, that you'd kind of been left with? And we don't need to get into, you know, there's a lot of controversy about the Civic Center, how it's funded, all that stuff. Um, but, like, tell me how that impacted your actual work and your job. Well, to answer your first question, uh, I had a health crisis come up last December, a year ago, December, and... In evaluating that and getting treatment for that, I just realized that life was too short and I was tired Mm -hmm. and I needed to heal mentally and physically and emotionally, all of that. 
And that's what led me to decide to retire last April. I see a lot in social media about people talk about the Civic Center and it's a dump and don't put lipstick on a pig mm-hmm. and those kind of things. And I, I think people need to get out more. I challenge anyone to find a facility that's 55 years old, 56 years old, that um, is as well-maintained and as clean mm-hmm. as Amarillo Civic Center Complex. And we hear that a lot from events where either the promoter is in a lot of different buildings or their vendors are in a lot of different buildings or their attendees travel along with them. Um, it, it's a fabulous facility. But it, like you said, we, we take what we have and we work mm-hmm. with it and we do the best we can with it. And, uh, you know, there's some fabulous events that go on. A lot of memories are made. And I, I would say that, too. That's the best part of working in a job like I've had in my career is an occasional exception. But 99.9% of the time, people are going there and making memories. Yeah. Whether they're at a trade show buying something or they're at a graduation or a banquet or a hockey game or a ballet or a concert. And uh, that's a really rewarding career. When you are in a management position for a facility like that, and that facility is the center of a, a municipal controversy, let's call it, you know, everybody's talking about the civic center, whether it's about how to fund it or what it needs or what the problems are, or why don't we get these tours anymore? Like, is, is it hard to not take that personal? Because if, if anybody was like associated with the building itself, like it was you and your staff, does it feel like those complaints are complaints about you? Not typically. I mean, people aren't shy if they're unhappy with me or the staff, they would let me know. Mm-hmm. And, and that's good. That's how we learn. That's how we improve. We make a mistake, we own it, and move on. But I think just the uncertainty of the process. I came back in 2009, and the 2011 is when we started the needs assessment. And that was a long process, yep. and there were a lot of different elected officials, um, different bodies of people that were involved along that ride. I guess it's been 12 years now. So I think the uncertainty is the biggest part and the expectations. I mean, if any of the plans had moved forward, there there were high expectations for success. Yeah. I feel with your job and and maybe you can name names, maybe not. um, You had sort of an up close uh, opportunity to see a lot of really famous people kind of come through the building, you know, whether it was, acts like Kiss back in the day or George Strait or um, Garth Brooks or, or anything like that. Like, are, are, are there any stories about some of those bands or some of the situations or some of the things that happened that, uh, that you can, you can share with or without incriminating details? <laughs> I mean, that, that's know, the kind of stuff I'll, people always want to know. I'll start with, I've never, maybe because of my background in, in acting and, and I have a lot of friends that are professional actors and people I went to school with, but I've never been a, an autograph seeker type mm-hmm. of a manager. I, I don't have a picture taken with a lot of the people that have been in the building. Um, I feel like they get enough of that and they don't need it from me. And, and my staff was always good about that too, about giving them their space when they're off stage and let them do their thing on stage. But I will tell you, I was a stagehand. It was my very first job at the Civic Center when I was in college. And it was Garth Brooks' first performance at the Civic Center, I believe. 
and he <clears throat> walked out off the stage and we're all lined up waiting to get in there and get the gear taken down. And he shook every one of our hands hmm. and said, thank you. And that was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I remember a big, I won't say how big, a rapper by the name of Heavy, Heavy D. Yeah. Heavy that, D and the boys. That was on the auditorium stage and the um, pit was up on stage level to extend the stage out. And we were concerned about the weight of the, <laughs> of he and his entourage on the pit. There have been a lot of folks that have come through there, uh, many of them, and they still do, um, come for charity events. And typically that's when you'd see um, people a little more up close because they're not in the dressing room and mm -hmm. then on stage and back to the dressing room. And I've met Barbara Bush and James Earl Jones and uh, political figures over the years. Uh, George Bush, uh, when he first ran for governor, was in the building two or three times that campaign season. And yeah, it's it's been fun, but I, I don't have a bunch of those because I, mm -hmm. I really didn't spend a lot of time backstage stargazing. So you uh, you retired last year. Um, your retirement didn't last very long. No. Uh, was was that was that intentional? I mean, when you when you said, okay, I'm, I need to take time off. I need to change. I need to get better. Did you think? that might be a long-term thing, or do you think this is a temporary period? You know, I, at the time, I just knew I needed it, mm -hmm. and I didn't give a lot of thought to the length. Um, as I was healing physically, I started feeling better, and when I started feeling better, it made me want to get out and do something again, and the opportunity came up late this summer. I had heard that the Convention and Visitor Bureau was going to hire its first full-time film commissioner. Uh, the CVB's always had someone representing film in Amarillo, but over the years that budget had been cut up and, and mm -hmm. shrunk to almost nothing. And Cashin and the board had made a decision a year ago to put some money into it. I, th I think a lot of it had to do with sharpened iron coming to town. Mm -hmm. A lot of it had to do with 1883 filming in, in the near right. vicinity. The Taylor Sheridan and, effect. Yes. And it it was time to make an investment and see if we can sell Amarillo as a film destination. So um, I interviewed with Cashin a couple of different times, and it was a good fit. And so I went back to work in October. Tell me what that looks like, because I, I, I think people probably understand, you know, this is what the CVB does. They're, they're trying to get travelers or they're trying to get events or whatever to come to Amarillo. What does it look like on the film side? I mean, you can't just go out and do you just go out and pitch Amarillo well, and the landscape. We, we and will stuff? be, and and in fact, the uh, film committee, Cashin brought together folks starting last spring, uh, well ahead of my uh, starting, and the film committee uh, has helped brand the film office, and it's actually called the Greater Amarillo Film Commission, and that's very intentional. While the CVBs job is to put heads and beds in Amarillo mm -hmm. and to promote tourism and meetings in Amarillo. 1883 really opened folks' eyes to the fact that none of it was filmed in Amarillo. And yet all of their stars and the vast majority of their crew stayed in hotel rooms in Amarillo. Right. They ate in restaurants in Amarillo. They went shopping in Amarillo. And so it was very intentional to brand it as the Greater Amarillo Film Commission and we're working now to put together a production reel with real locations that will be free film friendly. They've agreed to say, yes, we want film projects on our 
ranch or our yeah. canyon or whatever. But the number one goal for me right now is to sell the landscape, to show why Amarillo is different from El Paso or Midland or Fort Worth or anywhere else you might feel like you can get West Texas views. Um, within a 50-mile drive of Amarillo, you can get everything. Yeah. And so we're going to work hard on selling the landscape first. The people are going to be sell themselves. When, when productions come here, they love the people they work with. They find them amenable and, and friendly and maybe a few autograph seekers, yeah. but not too bad. What are the challenges with Amarillo? I mean, that, that maybe, let's say, El Paso might not have or Albuquerque might not have or Dallas might not have because they've, our, they're more established. Our biggest challenge today is the lack of a trained labor force. Okay. That's like production opinion. crew. The production crew. They need to come in and they need to hire on the ground a lot mm -hmm. of people. And I think that will change. And It's a chicken and an egg thing. People can't just quit their jobs and start working in film when there's not enough film right. production to keep them employed. By the same token, we're not going to get a ton of production in here if we can't have the labor for them. So I think it'll be a, an interesting balancing act to see how that happens. There are very qualified, talented people in Amarillo or that are from Amarillo that have moved to larger markets. Mm -hmm. So they can stay employed doing what they love to do. Is there an element of, you know, we, we don't have the, maybe the high-end hotel facilities or our airports not impressive enough. I mean, are there any things like that that when you think of a Hollywood production coming in and people kind of wanting to apologize for Amarillo being smaller than usual? Is that is that I, a hurdle? In, I don't in that think sense? it is. Um, it would be great if we had more air service in Amarillo, but I don't know that that stopped any production from filming here, mm -hmm. whether it's been recent or 30 years ago. Right. I mean, it was okay uh, for Steven Spielberg have, with... Indiana Jones, you know, at one point, <laughs> it's probably okay for the others. Well, and, and certainly there are enough, Emerald has got a plethora of hotel rooms of all levels. It's a good mix for a film company. There's high-end hotels mm -hmm. for superstars and there's wonderful limited service hotels for the bulk of the crew. And uh, it's a good mix. I, I know you've not been on the job very long, but is there anything you can tell me about like what might be in the works, you know, that, that you're free to talk about. Yes and no. I, I won't give any particulars. There is a production company um, from the Dallas area that's looking at doing a, a film about T. Colin Davis and his trials. Hmm. Okay. And one of those trials occurred here. And so they're looking for sure at doing exteriors uh, here in downtown Amarillo, but we're hoping to convince them there's enough facilities in town that they could do a lot of their interior filming here as well. It's funny because There'd be some weeks we'll get two or three or four calls, and then we might go two weeks without anything. But one of the things I'm working on doing now is getting our location database mm -hmm. upgraded. And we'll be launching that here pretty soon. And we'll be working hard to find locations, whether it's churches or homes or cemeteries or alleyways or wheat fields or cornfields or every type of location right. you can imagine into that database and it, it is shared with most of the other, the, the program's called Real Scout and it's what the Texas Film Commission uses, it's what most of the other states, uh, regional film commissions use and it's used across the world, but especially in the US. And so it's really gonna help us for scouts that don't know Amarillo or yeah. don't know 
the communities they might even want to go to just by doing broad searches in a region. That's so always that should help us a lot. It's funny to think in those terms of scouting locations because I think everybody has been watching a movie or a TV show and they put a little, you know, subtitle on that says Amarillo, Texas, and they show a scene and it doesn't, it's no place in Amarillo. You know, yeah. it's nothing that we recognize. And I yeah. just think, hey, you could have come here and, and shot yeah. a hotel exterior. Well, um, and, and there's, there's going to be opportunities, um, not so much this first year. I really need to get the lay of the land and make some decisions on which would be best. But I'll attend film festivals mm-hmm. across the state and the U.S. and and sell Amarillo okay. and and have information about it, like as a vendor almost. Yes, and a table and exactly. Is the presence of sharpened iron does that give a boost to what you're doing? Does that help legitimize the city in some sense? I think so. If, if sharpened iron and Emerald College both can be successful with what they're set out to do, with AC working on workplace development mm-hmm. and a degree program. And sharpened iron working on expanding the number of studios. Um, those will be game changers. What do you think Amarillo has to offer for, let's say, the the film industry that sets us apart, that makes us a little bit different? You know, um, typically they used to shoot westerns. You know, outside of California, they all look the same. You know, the same sort of scenery because it was close. Now they might come here. Taylor Sheridan's come to this area. Like, is there something unique about this area, the region, the landscape that feels obvious? Like we should be a a place where this happens. I think the landscape is a big deal. And the fact that within a 50 mile radius of Amarillo, other than full fledged mountains and beaches, you can see it all. Mm -hmm. We have bodies of water. We have canyons. We have mesas. We have flat as far as the eye can see. Um, and I think that is pretty unique. I think the Texas Panhandle has some of the most unique landscape in the United States in terms of varied, yeah, not all the same. And I, I don't think you can discount the people. The people in Amarillo and the Panhandle are hardworking people. They have ethics. They doesn't cost as much, um, not because we're cheap, but our cost of living is right. less than... Say if you're filming in the Metroplex or in the Austin area or Houston. So I think there's a lot of advantage. And if we could get the studio space in Amarillo, I mean, I'm reading regularly in trade magazines, the the studios are full everywhere. Hmm. And and one of the things that will help Texas be more competitive is a better economic incentive program through the state. And we've got legislators working on that as we speak. And hopefully some of that will pass and and help us – lure some of that business that's not in California and New York, but are going to New Mexico and Louisiana and Georgia and other states that are much more competitive than we are. Yeah, that's one of the things I wanted to ask about is because I know, you know, in the last couple of decades, like Georgia has become a center for uh, film and TV production. I know Albuquerque has become a center for film and TV production. It's because of the incentives they've offered, tax incentives. Mm -hmm. Is is that entirely a state thing? Is is there a role that as a municipality, Amarillo can play in that, or are we just reliant on There's on not much room for Amarillo itself or the CVB for financial incentives, but we can and do work with hoteliers and with restaurants and with caterers to try to get good prices and discounts mm-hmm. locked in so that when a film comes in, they, they know they're going to they're gonna have a deal with their hotels or they're going to have a deal with their caterer. And, and again... It doesn't take a lot 
to be much less expensive than if you were in the Metroplex or one of the larger uh, communities in, in Texas. I want you to think about your job, what you're doing, and kind of look longer term, five or 10 years from now. Like, are, are you thinking in that direction or are you only thinking, well, I got to go to this film festival, you know, this year? Are, are you trying to like meet a certain number of goals or anything like that? I told you about the film committee and, and helping to brand the film office. Mm -hmm. And we are calling ourselves the Hollywood of the High Plains. Okay. So 10 years from now, I envision a very robust film community in Amarillo. And a reputation, I guess, for it. Sure. Beyond Amarillo. Sure. Do you think we are equipped now to be that or are we on a trajectory to be that we're on a trajectory and it's a 10-year goal okay for sure not a six month or next year goal you think you'll still be doing it in 10 years i can't see why i wouldn't this this is the second act uh, of your other, career so other than retirement parts yeah. of retirement felt really good so. <laughs> but not good enough to keep you no i love what i'm doing now this episode of Hamarillo is supported by Blue Handle Publishing, a local publishing company that's home to several local authors. I'm headed out on vacation this summer and cracking open a new novel is one of my favorite things to do. On a flight, on a patio, on the beach, wherever I end up. Blue Handle encourages you to think local if you're looking for a great summer read, like the special edition hardcover of The Wizard's Brew by Jordan Reed or Charles D'Amico's fiction series. Learn more at bluehandlepublishing.com. That's local summer reads, courtesy of bluehandlepublishing.com. Okay, I'm back with Sherman Bass. Sherman, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum and Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes a 1903 Ford Model A runabout that was vehicle number 28 of the more than 1,700 ever produced. Uh, that model is the oldest assembly line vehicle in the world, and you can see it uh, and learn more at panhandleplanes.org. Okay, so we, we talked about 10 years from now in the film world, but this is my first question. Other, uh, when, when you think of Amarillo 10 years from now, what do you hope for? Hopefully we've had good, sustainable growth mm -hmm. over 10 years. Quality of life is such that that if our children and grandchildren decide to go to college elsewhere, that they might return to Amarillo to raise their family. Mm -hmm. I think we're getting better at that too. So it's certainly a more, topic of conversation now more than more it used improvement to be. in that area. But yeah, is there any way we could still have the Civic Center as it is ten years from now and and be hitting some of those milestones? If our community still has the existing Civic Center in ten years. I feel confident that the city and the staff there will continue to run it to the best of their ability to keep it clean and well-maintained, but I don't anticipate it will be very competitive. Okay. Other than wind, what does this area have too much of? So my first thought was blowing dust, mm -hmm. and I don't know if that counts as wind. but It's it wind-related. Like it's wind-adjacent for sure. Throughout my life, there's been wind, but the past two or three springs, the yeah. dust just seems to be so much worse so. so lack of rain past few years yeah, definitely is that is that an issue when you're thinking of selling amarillo as a film destination you know I mean, do you have to be you like you might that, get like two out of seven days that you can't shoot because of the dust or wind or something like that i, I think overall amarillo has good film weather uh, the wind could be the biggest setback especially mm -hmm. when we're talking about selling the environment and the 
the landscapes that we have. If, yeah. if the wind can't allow production, then you're you're off for a day or the, two. The landscape might look cool with the wind, but like audio is going to be yeah. terrible. Yeah. So, um, and we have talked about as as we work on locations and specific, really film friendly locations that we can count on. I'm going back and and capturing those um, in all seasons. Yeah, because we're not going to see a lot of seasons where we have a lot of green, but there's times of the year when it rains and, you know, 10 days later, the prairie is beautiful. Right. What does this area not have enough of? Well, you already said rain. Yeah. We don't, we don't have enough rain. Um, I'd like to, I, this is nothing against United supermarkets. I love United. I think they have great products, but I'd like to see a, a larger variety of, of grocery options. Okay. And specifically Trader Joe's. Yeah. I don't think you're alone so, in that. Trader and Joe's and ATB, that's what everybody wants here. You'd, you'd think we hit the population number when we crossed 200,000. And our MSA, again, we're a hub for people that come to Amarillo and shop and go to medical and entertainment. And you'd think we could get a little bit of variety. Okay. What's the most underrated thing about living in Amarillo? I've talked about the people a lot. Um, the arts community. We have a remarkable arts community from the symphony, opera, ballet, longest continuously running uh, community theater in the nation, Mm -hmm. um, museums and galleries, Arts in the Sunset is about to reopen or has reopened. And it just, uh, it astounds me when people say there's not a lot to do in Amarillo. Live music, Mm -hmm. there are so many live music venues in Amarillo. Okay. What's your favorite local coffee shop? You know, I'm not a specialty coffee drinker, very rarely. So I like roasters. I like uh, Palace. I just drink plain black coffee or soda. Okay. That, that's fine. No no, <laughs> no problems with that. What's your favorite local restaurant or food truck? Mexican is Jorge's. It's just been very dependable over the years. Mm-hmm. We've, we've been eating there for 20 years. Yeah. Man, there's a lot of good barbecue in Amarillo. Tyler's is... is you know, recent favorite, but I, I like it all. And Yolo's, I've really enjoyed Yolo's food truck. That's how I first heard of that. But right. they've got a place yeah, they've on got a brick and mortar. downtown and not far from the office. So I like like Yolo's. Okay, that's a that's a good list. What's your favorite local nonprofit? Downtown Women's Center. Okay, I think highly of the work they do and, and their leadership. Another Chance House mm-hmm. does similar work. That I really like them. And the arts groups, you know, all of the arts groups count on donations. The, their their budget is not from earned income, even right. if they're charging for tickets to their play or their symphony or whatever. And so I like, I like the fact that we have a robust art scene and we need to support them. Okay, last question. When was the last time you visited Cadillac Ranch? It was probably four years ago. I had a friend in from out of town that had never been. And, uh, so we went out to Cadillac Ranch. Were they... Uh, impressed by it did it meet expectations oh yeah okay i, I always wonder. i don't know anyone that that i personally have known that has been there that haven't been uh, maybe not impressed but it, it's a spectacle it's and, a spectacle and, yeah and almost everyone that you talk to they may not know about amarillo but they know about cadillac ranch and a big texan okay well that concludes the eight straight questions sherman i like to close by asking my guests to endorse something so what's one thing you would want listeners to know about or to experience I'm going to cheat and endorse two things. Okay, I'll take it. The first one is is timely, so a year from now it may not matter, but it might. 
and that is Arts in the Sunset is hosting the Sistine Chapel traveling exhibit. Yes. And it closes July 23rd, I believe. It's really exciting to see this exhibit come to Amarillo, Texas. It's one of the smaller communities it's visited in the United States. I mean, it's been in like Chicago and Shanghai and yeah, places like that. Across the world. Yeah. So it's very exciting. I think it's going to help get a whole new audience into the Arts in the Sunset. Mm-hmm. And if it's successful, I think Arts in the Sunset will look at bringing programs like this on an annual or maybe every two years basis to bring more of these type traveling exhibits to Amarillo. So very excited about that. And then uh, my favorite person in the world is my wife, and she is the executive director of the Education Credit Union Foundation. Okay. It's a new foundation the Credit Union formed to enhance the giving and support of the community that they do in Amarillo. Since 2009, they've been giving pocket change grants. Those are $750 grants to teachers across the panhandle that need help in their classroom whether it's for supplies or specialized equipment, anything like that. And so give a plug to the Education Credit Union Foundation. If you're inclined to give, give. And if you're a teacher, be sure to watch this summer for the applications to be released to apply for a pocket change grant. Okay, that's great. All right. Sherman Bass, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. And that concludes the episode. Thanks again to Sherman for the interview. You can learn more about what he does by heading to visitamarillo.com slash film. Thanks also to Blue Handle Publishing and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for sponsoring Hey Amarillo. And thanks to Angelina Marie for editing the show. Thank you for listening. Hey Amarillo exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you and the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Hey Amarillo's executive producers include Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Corey Burns, Josh Wood, Wes Reeves, Cindy Graham, and Barbara and Jim Witten. This has been episode 307. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.